My name is Bob Manatic and an alcoholic. This is about life and balance, and this is uh, a lot to do about reentry and relapse. Uh, actually, probably the biggest thing it has to do with is a strange phenomenon known as self-esteem, which is frequently quite bruised when people go into treatment, and even more so when they go into treatment for a relapse. Uh, it probably will give you a warm feeling in the pit of your stomach to know that I have no great didactic presentation for you. Um, I have some things that I do want to say, but I, I certainly want to get as much dialogue going as we can, especially for the people in the room who might be uh, new in recovery and struggling some of, with some of the reentry re issues that we have and getting our lives back in some semblance of balance. How many people in the room are in that position? Would you care to raise your hands if there are any of you? So I've got one or two. Okay. How many people in the room have experienced the wonderful experience I had, namely relapse? Okay, good. All right. Um, let me start out by giving you perhaps a different view on what relapse is and how I've come to see it and how we see it at Hazelden where I work. Um, a fellow by the name of Terry Gorski wrote an excellent book called Staying Sober. And what Terry did was he uh, got a bunch of people who had relapsed from this disease and started asking them a bunch of questions, almost randomly to some degree. And he gathered a lot of data and he came up with a lot of uh, different insights into relapse. And the thing that I didn't know um, and know now is that on the average, the relapse starts approximately three years before the drink or the pill is taken. And when the relapse begins, the person who is going in that direction is totally clueless as to what's happening. And if you begin to think of it that way, it, it gets a little bit easier to understand. Um, I feel personally that if somebody says to you, call your sponsor before you drink, if you start thinking that seriously about drinking, I seriously doubt you're ever going to get to your sponsor. At least the majority of people will not. Uh, the time to call your sponsor is, you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months, two years earlier, and, and to keep an ongoing dialogue. One of the reasons that AA is so important is because it can provide you with mirrors to let you know where you are. Uh, I have, over the course of the last five and a half years after coming out of my relapse, learned to be extremely scared of my brilliant ideas. Some of them got me into some very interesting places. And I have now made it much more of a priority in my life to try to bring things to the people that are in my support network and understand that I cannot objectively or accurately evaluate myself at any given time. That does not mean that I've given up living. It just simply means that I'm much more willing to use the help that's available to me and uh, actually go so far as to listen to it once in a while. I think most of us go to people for advice really looking for confirmation. And that can be a lethal combination if you happen to have our disease. Uh, so openness and reflection is very important in staying out of the relapse pattern. And it will frequently go something like this. You'll, you'll be at a meeting or you'll be maybe at your doctor's group or wherever you are. And somebody will say to you, you know, Jim, I've noticed in the last eight weeks, two months, uh, you're just kind of irritable and you're a little bit tired and, and uh, you're just not the same guy. If more than one person tells that to you, I think you probably need to start paying attention to it really quickly because something is wrong. And it may not indeed be the beginning of a relapse, but it may well be. And you're not going to find out whether it is or not until you get much further down the road. The second part of Gorski's relapse curve is, is uh, a little bit more obvious. And it's uh, the kind of thing you see when you start seeing people go, well, sobriety stinks. Uh, you know, the Board of Medical Practice has got its head in a dark place and uh, 
the world's kind of against me, and you see a lot of blaming and a lot of awfulizing and a lot of poor me, and a lot of people looking at glasses that are half full as if they were half empty. Now, that happened to me personally. A good part of the second half of my first recovery, uh, I was pretty much not happy with it, anything. And I was clueless as to the fact that that was uh, really my relapse. <laughs> there was nothing in the world that would make me happy. And on the surface, I had everything you were supposed to have, and I was relatively miserable. It never occurred to me that that was big trouble on, until the chemical relapse actually came. Uh, you see people begin to withdraw at the end of this second phase. They, they drop off meetings, although I happen to be a person who was in relapse 13, 14 months and never missed a meeting. Uh, but I've always had the opportunity to look good even when I was dying, so that was my problem. And But near the end, you begin to see people dropping away from meetings. Uh, you know, they call their sponsor to see how their sponsor's doing, uh, as opposed to say something about how they're doing. Uh, I uh, With my first sponsor, I uh, I think I helped him a lot. Uh, I almost died in the process, but I think I helped him a lot. And you begin to see people pulling away. And you may see them pulling away, not just in an AA context. They may be pulling away from their families. They may be pulling away from their colleagues. They may be pulling away from the practice of medicine or dentistry or nursing. In general, you'll see a withdrawal. Now, there are lots of people who get down that curve. Uh, I tell my, my patients up at Hazelden that nobody in recovery is static. You are never static in recovery. On any given day, you're only going in one of two directions towards your serenity or towards your relapse. Now, fortunately for most of us, most of the time, that oscillation is very small. It's not a really big thing. And, you know, AA was very astute. The founders of AA were astute in describing the dry drunk. And I don't think there's a person in the room who hasn't been through that phenomenon or been in recovery for very long. The problem is this. Suppose you're three-quarters of the way down that relapse curve and your mother dies or your son is kidnapped. Or you suddenly get in an automobile accident and you can no longer practice whatever it is you practice. Now you're a setup. You're an absolute screaming setup. And it, it can happen so quickly that you have absolutely no protection against it whatsoever. Most of the people who come in in relapse are surprised that they're there. They don't, they don't see it. They had no warning. They didn't see a thing. And the largest reason for that, I think, is because they've been isolated for so long, they have nothing to reflect back to them where they really are. Yeah. And then, of course, you hit the uh, you hit the point at which you pick up the chemical, and you know there are a lot of people who think, well, if I ever have a relapse, I'll go back into treatment. And many people do that. The problem is, is that when you hit that relapse, you have absolutely no idea what might happen. I had a physician in my private practice who uh, <clears throat> just really couldn't get it, kind of a malignant relapser, and didn't really have a clue and kept thinking that he could just keep going back to treatment. And then one day uh, he diverted some co uh, cocaine and Demerol from his hospital pharmacy and the authorities uh, got involved in it, not the regulatory people, but the police department. And he was staring down the, the pipe at a 10-year sentence for possession. And uh, the district attorney in the case was really hot to get this particular physician. Now, he did do some jail time and, and he's out now and trying to reestablish his life. But you can't think that if I relapse, I'm necessarily going to get back into the game. You could relapse and be dead. You could relapse and be in jail. Uh, you could relapse and, and uh, lose everything you had. There's just absolutely no guarantee at any given time what might happen to you. And I think a lot of us uh, miss that. Relapse doesn't have to be chemical use. Relapse can be the emergence of addictive thinking, and it can take a lot of different looks. 
one of the classic relapse modes for healthcare professionals is workaholism. They get into a program, they stay sober, they go to meetings, and they're working 100 hours a week. And then they start to get frazzled, and then they start to get angry, and then they start to get depressed, and something pops up, and bam, there they are. And that is the thing I think we see most frequently uh, where I work, is, is people that are just substituting their, the practice of medicine or the practice of nursing for their addiction. I like to tell all the people that come through our program, you are not your profession. You know, physician or nurse or dentist is what you do for a living. It is not who you are. And those of you who might have heard my talk the other day uh, when I was talking about being in, in sports medicine and, and being in Division One football, during those years, that's who I was. And when it went away, I had a heck of a time dealing with that because there was just nothing else going on. And it's real easy to do in this profession because you get big points for it. Everybody loves the hardworking physician. Everybody loves the self-sacrificing physician. Everybody loves the dentist who will be there at 8 o'clock at night to, to take care of your dental emergency. Society thinks that's just wonderful. And it is for society. It may not be too good for us. And so it's real easy to lock in on that and actually think you're doing well when you're starting to, to you know, your tail section of your airplane is beginning to smoke. And, and you're not even aware of it. Uh, so I think workaholism is something that, that really needs to to be addressed, and, and uh, I uh, have the good fortune to be Diane Noss's medical advisor, and, and the people that we work with, uh, we watch that very carefully, and we have put restrictions on people's work weeks and uh, that sort of thing. Obviously, the earlier you are in recovery, the more crucial it is, but don't ever think that it's ever going to go away, because it doesn't. And uh, certainly I have seen uh, physicians who have been in recovery 25 years uh, who have relapsed. It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen, and, and there's no protection from this disease at any time in your life. Having said that, let me just mention a couple of things that I think are crucial in um, the recovery of addicted healthcare professionals. By the way, I hope you never hear me utter the phrase impaired healthcare professional. If you do, please shoot me. I hate it. Uh, we go to extraordinary lengths to talk about this disease, 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 and then we start flipping terms around like uh, impaired professionals and rehabilitation. Uh, I'm grateful that three years ago, Hazelden took out of their vocabulary the word rehabilitation and the word rehabilitation services. The words are now recovery and recovery services. And it's amazing what you can do to yourself by the way you talk to yourself sometimes. I was, I was having a discussion with, with uh, somebody here uh, a few days ago who was telling me that he was in rehab. And I looked at him and said, you were not in rehab, you were in treatment. And you may think that's a semantic argument, but it's not. You know, how you treat yourself is what you become. And if you keep on doing the negative, you'll get negative results. So we're, we're fairly fussy about that, that one point. Why do I think that some physicians fail? Um, now I'm gonna take away the obvious one. I think that if you're not monitored, I think you're, you're going up a much greater incline than if you are monitored. That's a problem for a lot of people because I can't stand here or in my office and tell anybody that there isn't a risk of being monitored. It depends on what state you're in. Uh, and it was mentioned earlier, Pennsylvania is not the greatest place in the world to get caught diverting narcotics. Uh, you're not going to see your license for 10 years. California used to really be bad, now it's improving. Um, Florida has got a reputation as being very good, almost easy if you're uh, a recovering healthcare professional. And uh, 
you have to be aware that you're not necessarily putting your face into a giant mixmaster that's grossly unfair. But in the main, I would much rather have everybody report, and the number of times I would suggest to somebody that they might not is very few and far between. Uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, we know the recovery rates are better. And number two, one of the fears that new healthcare professionals have coming into treatment is that somebody's going to find out. Now, what they don't understand is everybody already knows. They were the last to know. But it is a, it is a giant fear. And I don't know about any of the people in this room, but one of the things that I'm grateful for in my personal recovery was the fact that very early on, I chose to just kind of let my life be an open book. The advantage to that, and I paid some prices for it, but the advantage to that is nobody can come around the corner at me from left field when I'm not looking. You know, there's really nothing there. When I took the job at Hazelden, which is where I was a patient, by the way, uh, I went into that interview and I told them exactly what was going on in my life. And there's nothing that my employer knows about me uh, that's not worth knowing. And anything they don't know is not worth knowing. Uh, there's a freedom in that, I think. Uh, a great freedom. The other problem you have, of course, if you, if you get caught lying to a board or a regulatory agency and they catch you, you've got a bigger problem than you had when you started. You know, I don't think there's any question. People who, who are monitored do better than people who are not monitored. And I think most people will tell you that, that uh, continuing care in addicted health care professionals probably ought to be about five years long. And that has a huge impact on the recovery rates uh, in the long term. The two biggest problems that I see when people get into treatment and are starting to reestablish their life, number one, far and away, is shame. Uh, you'll see people coming in and they're just beating themselves to death. And of course, as a group, we're intellects. We're smart people. So the first thing we tell ourselves is this should never have happened. I should have known better. And when you listen to some of these patients, it's almost like, you know, they thought themselves Superman, that they should have known everything in the world. Now, we'll ignore the fact that the state of knowledge of the average physician in the United States on the subject of addiction is something on the order of appalling. I mean, we're pretty much not trained that way. And it's getting a little better, I think, but it's still a long way away from, from where it needs to be. And all of a sudden, there we are in treatment holding ourselves responsible for the fact that we didn't know what we should have, should have known, and, and it kind of goes on and on. I just admitted a, a surgeon to our program not too long ago who was doing that very well. I mean, it was just textbook. Uh, I should have known, I should have known. I'm a bad surgeon because I'm an addict, et cetera, et cetera. And shame is something that you, you have to deal with fairly early on. And it is for that reason that I do not believe in using a kamikaze approach on people who are in recovery unless it's absolutely necessary. I know there are some places that feel like they've got to break you down and rebuild you and they've got to kind of beat on you and that sort of thing. We don't do that unless you push us into the deepest corner we have. Uh, it is absolutely pointless to me to start beating on somebody who's coming out of a shame base and has no self-esteem whatsoever. And if you start doing that, what frequently happens is they run. Or if they don't run, they may tolerate it for whatever period of time you're in treatment and they get out and you get a, a letter two weeks later and they were a suicide. So I think we work very hard to deal with, with issues of self-esteem. And I think that's a, a crucial issue in getting your life back in balance as you come back into the community. Um, one of the things that I assign my people in treatment is to keep a notebook next to their bed. And every night before they go to bed, they are required to write down three things they did well. Now, the typical physician will do something like this. Well, yeah, I made my bed really well, but that doesn't count. Any fool can do that. 
Uh, and you know what? When you're in treatment in the first 48 hours, that may not necessarily be so. <laughs> you know? and, and most of the healthcare professionals I've met, when they do something really good, they have an annoying habit of discounting it. You know? And I think there's one way to measure self-esteem in people. If, you, if you've ever gone up to somebody and said, gee, you know, you really did that well. I'm really impressed. You're going to get one of three answers. Answer number one is, well, it was no big deal. I was supposed to do that. You know, anybody could have done that. Sometimes you'll see the people on the opposite end of the spectrum who kind of look at you and go, yeah, I was great, wasn't I? And, and then there's the appropriate answer. Thank you very much. I appreciate hearing that. And when you go out from here and you look at even the general public and watch them, you can tell a lot about the self-esteem of an individual by how they deal with a compliment. You know, if you're really content that you're okay, you don't need to tell anybody about it. You know, you don't need to embellish on that. You'll just be comfortable with it. If you're not content that you're okay, you're going to have an issue. One of the things that I like to talk about, and it was Martin Luther King who said this, but he uh, outrageously stole it from uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Nobody can make you feel inferior without your express consent. And a lot of times when we're new in recovery and we're healthcare professionals, we're talking about, you know, those rotten people on the board or that idiot uh, chief of surgery or that spiteful nurse who turned me in, etc., etc. And those aren't the issues at all. The issues are what we think about us. The second issue that I think comes up a lot is, and it was mentioned in the panel discussion, is making the transition from healthcare provider to patient. And for some people, that can be devilishly difficult. I remember very well uh, when I was in treatment um, and I uh, admitted to trying to deal with my own depression. And the last thing my psychiatrist said to me was, uh, you probably ought to get out of the business of being your own psychiatrist. You know, um, frankly, at the time he said it, I thought he was a dope. But, uh, you know, he smartened up considerably as I've gotten further along in recovery. Um, one of the, the things that we have that's an ironclad rule on our units is you can't practice medicine on our units. If, if somebody has a seizure on the unit, we all but tell the, the health care providers, walk away and call the nursing station. Don't do anything unless, of course, you're doing a, uh, something. We had uh, one physician who did a Heimlich maneuver on one of our patients and saved his bacon. But short of that, uh, we don't want you uh, practicing medicine, and it will get you into trouble on our unit. You'd be surprised how many people can't do that, or at least not well in the beginning. We had a cardiologist up last year who absolutely could not get it out of her head that she wasn't running our service. And we had a patient seize in one of the units, and the chaos that was there was, I mean, she was screaming for an IV, and she was screaming for a monitor, and she was screaming for this, that, and the other thing, and the patients were getting upset, and the patient was just on the ground happily seizing. And, and you know, if you've ever worked in a treatment center, seizure's not exactly a surprise. You know, I, it does happen on occasion. We don't like it to, but it does. Uh, and unfortunately, that, that individual wind up leaving treatment and just could not grasp any of the, the concepts that she needed to grasp or make the changes that she needed to make in order to survive. I don't know what happened to her, but I would not necessarily predict good things for that particular individual. So we spend a lot of our time with those two issues, shame and the transition um, into the patient role, which is nothing more than, you know, it's really higher power stuff is what it is. It's, it's really classic step three stuff. Um, you know, you are not in control. You are not the boss here. And you are going to need to do what you are asked to do. As I look back on some of the things in, that I see in relapse, and, and sometimes when somebody's relapsed four or five times, we get into almost a condition reflex 
they relapse, they go to treatment, they relapse, they go to treatment, they relapse, they go to treatment, they relapse, they go to treatment. Uh, and that may be appropriate for some people, but I think one of the things you have to do at that point is you have to sit down and take a really comprehensive history about what was going on with that individual, and you may be very surprised at what you see. I had a uh, um, pediatric intensivist in my practice who had an annoying habit of doing ketamine. And he had been in treatment, I believe, three times. And uh, about every four months, he'd nail some ketamine in the pediatric ICU and inject it into himself and go on a little ketamine trip. And uh, he wound up having his license suspended and losing his job. And he came in to me, and I started to talk to him and listen to him. And I discovered something very interesting about that particular individual. He genuinely thought that if he went to AA long enough and hard enough, his addiction would actually go away. It was not denial. He really believed it. Now, now that sounds really simple and almost farcical, but it happens. It, it really does happen. People just don't understand that this is not a disease that you, you get away from. Uh, the other problem we have with that is, is you know, the average health care provider coming into treatment doesn't really know much about addiction. Um, at some point, I like to have my physician clients in particular start looking in the literature at least a little bit. I know for a long time the phrase disease concept, a phrase that I dislike intensely because I don't think there's much of a concept about it anymore, it was almost like that was tossed out to make us feel better about ourselves and almost like it was a bone or something. Now, the fact of the matter is, the undeniable fact of the matter is, is that this disease is a disease and that the literature on that would probably come close to filling a good part of this room. There's absolutely no question about it. And yet time after time after time, the people coming into treatment, otherwise excellent health care providers, simply do not know and they frequently cannot make the transition. Now, I was very fortunate, um, although I didn't know it at the time, when I came sailing into treatment after my somewhat spectacular and public relapse, the first week I was up there, I had uh, my not-so-happy wife visiting me. And... Uh, I don't know what you did when you went into treatment, but the morning that I went into treatment, um, I gave my wife my wedding, wedding ring. I resigned my job in front of my, my athletic director. I mean, I was just ready to, you know, if you put me up against the firing squad, I would have gone with a smile on my face. I, I was I was that shame-based. Um, but when you're coming into treatment and, and you've got that kind of uh, shame base, somebody's got to do something. Somebody absolutely must do something or you're flat going to die. There's no way around it. I mean, the number of people that you see coming out of treatment who are healthcare providers who are committing suicide is scary. It's a, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's significant. And we've seen it. We had one that was, that was on the news about uh, six years ago that was tragic. And the man had just come out of Hazelden and he uh, uh, got drunk and, and uh, put a gun to his wife's head while his two children were standing there and blew her head off and then turned the gun on himself. And that's what his two kids uh, had seen. Uh, so when we're dealing with people, we, we want to, you know, uh, deal with the self-esteem in the context of, of medical practice, and we want them to understand that it really is a disease, and that really helps a lot. We're not telling you this just to make you feel better. We're telling you this because it's a fact. And what my wife said to me on that Sunday was, was very simply this. She said, you know, I wish you could learn to hate your disease as much as you hate yourself. Now, I was in pretty sorry state at that point in time, and I didn't think terribly much of her words of wisdom. But as time went by, I got to understand that she's right. 
you know. And so what you'll hear a lot of times is somebody coming into you that's had a tough time of it, and look what I've done to my life. I screwed this up. I lost my license to practice. I get kicked off the hospital staff. I can't support my wife and family. I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. And the fact of the matter is, no, you're not. You simply have a bad disease. You're not necessarily a bad person. One of the things that always astounds me about addiction and dealing with it and talking about it is that all of us as physicians and healthcare providers are willing to talk about severity of disease in things like diabetes and hypertension and cardiac disease and what have you. I mean, we all understand that there are some diabetics who are walking around on diet and exercise and doing just quite well, and there are other diabetics that no matter what you do, they develop severe complications and they're, they're out of it by the time they're 42. The same thing is true with hypertension and cardiac disease. Some people have cardiac disease where they get a little pain shoveling snow and take a little nitro and other people wake up dead on Tuesday. The same thing is true for addiction. And a lot of people, I think, miss that. There are people who have this disease who we are going to be able to help greatly. And there are people who have this disease who are going to die. And if you can't accept that, I think you've got a bit of a problem, both in terms of having the disease yourself and if you happen to work in the field. There are some people who are not going to make it. And, and I was taught back in my residency days that when you were working on a cardiac, cardiac arrest, what you were really doing was pr practicing for the one in five or so that you really could save. I don't know if that, I would say that's true anymore, but, you know, uh, most of the people who are in cardiac arrest have an annoying habit of dying. Uh, if not right then, then certainly within the next week or so. And you need to recognize that if you're dealing with your own disease. Some people, you know, do a six-pack two, two days on a weekend and go into AA and stay sober for 35 years and die happy. And other people have been in treatment 10, 12, 13 times and are still struggling with it. So I think one of the things we try to do is, is get people to understand that because they've had a tougher time than somebody else, doesn't mean they're worse, it just means that their disease is more severe. And certainly you've probably all seen, at the very least in your AA experience, those people who picked up a drink when they were 12, and from that day on it was over. It was never crossing any line. And you see a lot of young, well, not a lot, but you see some young males do this, and by the time they're 19, they're either in jail or institutionalized or hopefully in recovery, and they've had an awful lot of problems. And some people have that form of the disease, and some people have the other form. And so if you're trying to get back into life and you're beating on yourself, that's something that you really need to accept. The other thing I think that gets in the way in, in trying to get back and, and established is the fact that our intellect gets in the way. Uh, I have a few handouts that I use in my groups, and uh, on more than one occasion I've, I've uh, given the handouts out, and then they've come back to the group the next time, and I notice, and the physicians usually do this, not so much the nurses, I notice that there's yellow magic marker all over the handout, you know, which is kind of the classic medical student move. And uh, I know in my first recovery, when I walked into AA, um, it was, it, I wish I had a video of it, uh, I kind of thought that if I could read enough, fast enough, hard enough, it would be okay. And there were nights when my wife and I were sitting on our king-size bed with virtually every volume ever published on the subject, as if I could study it and then take a board exam on it and then things would be all right. Almost every healthcare professional I've seen, particularly male physicians, lead with their intellect. Unfortunately, if you're addicted, your intellect gets you very little except more trouble. You know, I, I would like to say that, that recovery ought to be sponsored by Nike shoes. You know that little swoosh that they have in their ads? Just do it. Don't think about it. Just do it. You know, addiction is one of the few diseases around that you have to start getting better before you can figure out how sick you were. And it's really true. Uh, so we try to get people 
in, a, in an action mode very, very quickly and try to break down the intellectual barriers that, that are there. And, and I struggle with that personally. I, in my spiritual life, I went through a period there where I probably would have described myself as an atheist. And I, I started getting into these wonderful conversations you get into with yourself. Well, let me see. If there's a God, uh, what happened in Germany and what happened here? And I, how can somebody take you know, you know, And uh, you leave me about 10 minutes of that, and I've screwed myself into the couch. I'm absolutely bananas, you know. And one day I woke up and I said to myself, you know, these people in AA have been doing this thing for about 60 years. And most of them look pretty good to me. It doesn't make any difference what I believe. I think I'll just try it. And lo and behold, it worked. You know, I'm happy to tell you that I actually did that with my golf game. I love the game of golf. I play it about as poorly as any human being you'll ever see. I like to say that I am to golf what Kevorkian is to life. <laughs> you know. I recently picked up a book entitled Golf in the Kingdom. If you're a golfer and you're in recovery, I strongly encourage that you read this book by Michael Murphy. I, I didn't understand a good part of it, you know, but I began to grasp a few things. And what I've been told in my golf life all these years is you know everything there is to know about the game of golf. Unfortunately, you don't let it happen. And that's really true of me. I will get real mechanical and real interested in the mechanics, and I just can't do it. You know? And I'm here to tell you that I started doing that, and amazingly enough, my golf game is starting to shape up just a little bit, you know, because I'm going out there with the idea of enjoying the serenity of a golf course and having fun on a golf course and being with people on the golf course, you know, and if the ball goes into the woods on the right, it goes into the woods on the right, and and we'll just deal with that. Uh, so intellectualization is probably one of the biggest curses in, in, in addiction if you if you happen to be the patient with the addiction. One thing I want to say a word about, and I might get into some difficulty here, so uh, you can throw things if you like. We have pretty much a, a, a firm policy that when we send people out, we want our health care providers in mainstream AA. Not necessarily exclusively, but we want the majority of their time in recovery to be in mainstream recovery, not in physicians groups or nurse groups exclusively. I think that one of the problems, and likewise on our units, we do not have our healthcare professionals on one unit. We have them in the mainstream of the population. As Clancy likes to say on the AA podium, what kills most people with addiction is terminal uniqueness. And you see it all the time in healthcare professionals. I mean, some of the people come in, know everything there is to know about addiction. Most of them don't, but some come in that way. And there they are in the middle of their relapse in, in horrible shape. And, you know, there has been no protection from, from all of the things they know. Uh, most of those people, if you look at their past histories, you'll find out that they were hanging around with people who were exactly like them, which is useful, but not necessarily so much so if you happen to have the disorder of addiction. So we encourage our people to get into mainstream AA. We certainly encourage them to get into caduceus groups and physicians group and that sort of thing. But I always get a little nervous when a patient comes back and tells me, oh, yeah, I'm going to two meetings a week, the doctor's group in St. Paul and the doctor's group in Minneapolis. I, I think there, there are some problems that, that are associated with that. Um, I want to make a point, and this is not necessarily the patient's problem, but it, it is a problem that we see frequently, and I am not a psychiatrist. But um, one of the things that we see in relapse is failure to make additional Axis 1 or, in some cases, even Axis 2 diagnoses. 
Um, I believe that depression is probably the most common cause of relapse in addicted individuals, and it goes und undiagnosed frequently. And I tell all the patients that I see at Hazelden, especially the ones that are going out on antidepressants, that depression can be just as sneaky and lethal a disease as addiction can, and you need to take care of it. And the way you take care of it is not by deciding that you're not depressed anymore and you don't need the meds. Bad idea. What you need to do is be in the hands of competent care and you need to be listening to your competent care and doing what your competent care asks you to do. And if you fail to do that, you're liable to find yourself back in a relapse that you did not anticipate simply because you had another disease that wasn't addressed. That's also true of some other issues. Uh, uh, if you have a person who comes in who's got a, a, an addiction problem to, to chemicals and an addiction problem to something like gambling, you better address both of them or that person's going to go out and not drink and gamble, and eventually that's going to catch up with them and they're going to come crashing back into your facility in much, more, much worse shape. That's the scary thing about people who relapse. Relapse always gets worse. I've never seen anybody come in and relapse who was better than the last time they were there. They always come in worse, and it gets harder and harder and harder to come back um, the more you relapse. Um, I chose to stay in a relapse aftercare group for a long period of time, and I got to see that in an awful lot of people. Uh, you know, Their periods of sobriety got less and less and less with each relapse, and it's true whether you're a physician or whether you're an auto mechanic. It doesn't change in either case. Um, one of the other things that is, and this is my personal belief, you can do with it as you see fit, um, I'm always leery of people who somehow view recovery as abstinence. Not using the chemical is the entrance fee into the program and nothing more, in my opinion. And too many people fail to see that. You can't come cruising into recovery doing the same things you were doing when you were using chemicals. It doesn't work. You got to change your life somehow. When I was first in recovery, I used to look at that sixth step and I used to go, what are these people talking about? I don't understand any of this. But now what that sixth step means to me is that I can't do the things that I was doing while I was using. You know, I can't, I can't go out there and at least for me, I can't be a workaholic anymore. Uh, and I can't not care about what my wife thinks or my kids thinks. And uh, I made a decision to leave a very high profile job at a time that was all I had because somewhere in the, in the bottom of me, I knew you know, that it wasn't going to work, that I couldn't stay in recovery and have that particular job and be constantly worried about my ego. Now, you just can't be doing that. And and, and, and I, I see people in, in my meetings and I see some people professionally who have been sober 10, 11 years and you start talking to them and in 10 years they've had nine jobs uh, and three relationships and uh, a few other problems. That's recovery in a way, but it's not real contented recovery. And I don't know about anybody in the room, but if I thought for one minute that being in recovery was going to be boring and dull and not fun, I would be at that bar downstairs so fast all you'd see of me is a blur of light. Right? The object of recovery is to have a better life than you had before. And if you don't have a better life, something's wrong. And you need to address it. It doesn't happen overnight, but you know, you'd like to be able to think. And I, I had a football coach I worked for once, and, and he used to tell a team before a game, he says, can you get this much better tonight? That's all you have to do is get this much better tonight. And I've taken that and incorporated it in my own life, and that's kind of the way I look at my job. You know, I don't have to get this much better on any given day, and there will be days when I'll go backwards. But my only goal is to do this much better today than I did yesterday. And it's an achievable goal, and it's a goal that takes a lot of pressure off me if I'm, I'm able to do it on a regular basis. I want to talk a little bit about some suggestions for those of you who might 
be uh, early in the recovery process or maybe facing, you know, just coming back off a relapse or maybe even for the people who have gone uh, through relapse um, about, you know, restoring life. Um, it was extraordinarily difficult for me to begin to put my life back together again after I wound up in Hazelden. Um, you know, it was a period of time where I was essentially unemployable. I felt really bad about me. I uh, had the depression issues. I had money issues. It was extraordinarily difficult. I, honest to, to God, do not know why I'm here except for the grace of something much bigger than me. Uh, I cannot tell you the number of times in treatment and in the first two years I was in recovery that the only praying I did was to die. And even in the face of adequate antidepressants, by the way. Um, and I began to have to do some things in order to get out of that. And one of the things I did, I mentioned before, I started making a list of things I'd done well, no matter how insignificant they were. Sometimes it was, I stayed sober today, which should always be there. And we take that for granted, and we should never take that for granted. Uh, I've had people come up to me who know my whole story and go, my God, why didn't you drink? I mean, why are you wasting your time? You know, I mean, you can't get any worse. Oh, yes, it can. You know, I don't know about you, but when I was in relapse, the biggest problem was hating myself. It was, oh, God, it was awful. And I don't ever want to go back there. Um, so the more specific things that I can do as I try to come back into reentry, the better off I'm going to be. And some of them are going to be in my personal recovery, and some of them are going to be things that I have to do with the Board of Medical Practice or HPSP or whatever it is that I'm dealing with. Now, the first thing you need to do if you're trying to reestablish yourself is you got to go with the flow. If you would like to challenge your local regulatory board or the district attorney's office or any of those folks, uh, I wish you well. You know, uh, there are all kinds of higher powers. The IRS is a higher power. The sheriff who picked you up for a DWI is a higher power. And the board of medical practice and the physician's health program are higher powers. And I've seen people resist it. You know, and they, they get just steamrolled. So I think the first thing you have to do is, okay, I don't like this, but I'm going to go with it because it's all I have. The minute you do that, I think it's a lot easier. Uh, and if you don't do that, I think you're just doomed. I, I just don't know how you could possibly get out of that. The other thing you have to do, and this is something you see a lot, you got to go to those silly meetings, folks. And I cannot tell you the number of times that I've, I've looked at an aftercare plan and I, I've seen the aftercare plan and then I talk to the physician. And the physician tells me something like this. Well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to go to the caduceus group and I'm going to see my therapist and I'm going to work 80 hours a week because i got to do this. And I'm going to go to my medical society meetings and I'm going to get my CME squared away. And then I look at them and say, well, how about meetings? And they'll say something like, well, when I have time, you know. You don't get sober and stay that way in a vacuum. And if there's no value in going to an AA meeting other than saying that you are so-and-so and you are an alcoholic and an addict or whatever it is you are, then that value alone is worth the price of admission on that given night. You don't have to like any of it, but you have to do it. And you get people who say, geez, you want me to go four meetings a week? I mean, God, I can't go to four meetings a week. You know, my kid's soccer practice is on Tuesday and my wife will kill me and stuff like that. It doesn't work any other way. Fortunately, as you go on, it's, it's, you know, you can begin to back off a little bit, but at the beginning, you gotta be doing what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, when I first got monitored, I was very unhappy. And I thought that that was really almost communistic. Um, 
and uh, I had a little bit of an issue because the Board of Medical Practice didn't get to me until 13 months after I came out of treatment, and I was swearing up and down about due process and a few other things, you know, and, and uh, fortunately by that time I'd been hit in the head enough times to know that this was probably not the greatest argument I was ever going to advance, so I shut my mouth, uh, which sometimes is the best thing you can do in a recovery program. And... You know, they, they started to urine test me, and I complied and did what I was supposed to do. And then one day it occurred to me that those urine tests could be my friends. Because if you're a physician or a nurse in recovery, and you just had an argument with your wife before you left the house, you may show up at your hospital at your office a little squirrely. You know, you might be a little angry. You might be even a little goofy. And I'm sure all of you who have been there know that if you're three, four months out of treatment, and one of your staff sees you goofy, you know what the first thing's going to come into their head. Uh, and it was at times like that that I went down to the lab voluntarily and said, you know, take this specimen. I want to make sure that, that uh, nothing is going to get in the way of, of my recovery. And the urine testing became a friend and an ally to me. It became useful to me, even though at the beginning I hated every minute of it. Of course, I now have on my resume that I am able to produce a urine stream within 20 minutes of imbibing a liquid. It's a real useful thing to have on your, your resume. You know, they really like it. <laughs> Point of personal pride that I never missed a UA in three years of being stipulated. Never never had to make anybody wait around. Uh, I've done a lot of urine testing in, in the world of sports, and you haven't lived until you've waited around trying to urine test an athlete who just played football for two hours and is dehydrated as all get out. You know, uh, Some of the Olympic people have been there as late as three in the clock in the morning trying to induce a urine stream from somebody. Everything that's happening as you come back is intended in most cases to help you get where you need to go. Not only professionally, but it's also intended to help you uh, deal with your self-esteem, to become a member of the nursing or medical or dental community again. Uh, I think most people will agree that when you start to see some people who are uh, healthcare professionals who've been in recovery for a while, uh, you really begin to esteem those people. I don't have a single physician in my life who's not in recovery, personal physician. I'm not sure that I would, I would ever want to go to one who wasn't in recovery anymore because at least I know the people in recovery are in recovery. I'm not so sure about those other guys sometimes, you know. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of the people in my life who do anything with me are in recovery. And it's unfortunate that the insurance companies uh, and some of the boards don't see that. You know, I, I think people who are uh, somebody a year sober probably considerably safer than the, than the person who's just picked at random because you don't know anything about those people. But you, you need to begin to see all of this as something that can do something for you, not something that you have to do in order to get where you want to go. And if you do it that way, it begins to work. You know? And on your worst day, if, if you, uh, well, I had this experience. I was transferred over to the diversion program after my second year, and the diversion program was up, up and running, but it was a little bit shaky, and I hadn't been urine tested in five weeks. And uh, I knew what my stipulation read, and I didn't want to argue with anybody about my stipulation down the road. I, I kind of wanted that stipulation removed from my license, so I called up the diversion program and said, you guys haven't urine tested me in five weeks. Uh, and uh, I think the, the person who took the call thought I might be on the edge of mania or something. Uh, she didn't really expect a physician to call up and request to be urine tested. The only reason I did that was because I began to see all of this stuff as, as my friend and ally, not as my enemy. And if you make that transition in early recovery, it gets much easier very quickly. Um, I think the other thing that, that you have to do is you have to combat a classic healthcare pr professional's 
uh, resistance to being a joiner. <laughs> a lot of healthcare professionals that you see tend to be loners. And that's not really too terribly unusual. I mean, if you've been spending a 12-hour day listening to 50 people tell you what's wrong with them and begging you to fix them, you know, you don't necessarily want to hear that when you go home. You know, like as not, you want to crawl into a corner someplace and be left alone for four or six hours, you know. Um, you know, take your silly problem down the hall for a while. You know, the problem with that is it begins to lap over into all your life and then you start to get isolated and then when you start to get isolated, you're in trouble. Now, I will tell you straight out that that's one of my biggest character defects in the world. And I am at this conference for no other reason than Diane Nas stayed on my case long enough for me to get here. If I had been left to my own devices, I would not have come because I'm not the greatest joiner in the world and I'm not necessarily all that comfortable standing up in front of people. Once I got here, however, it took, oh, at least an hour and a half before I went, boy, this was a really good idea. I'm glad I thought of it. You know, yeah. you know, and that's a problem you see over and over again in healthcare professionals. More so, I think, in the men and the physicians than in the women and the nurses, but you see it all the way through. In order to be successful, in order to reestablish yourself, you're going to have to go someplace with other people. You're going to have to do it on a regular basis, and God forbid you're even going to have to tell them something about yourself. Ugh, that's awful. You know, I would rather, I would rather, uh, 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 have my hemorrhoids removed through a laryngoscope and do that, you know. Uh, that's, that's really dramatic. But there's no getting around it. And the good thing about it is, as you, as you, um, do that more and more and more, uh, it gets easier and easier and easier. And the more people you enlist around you, uh, then when you don't do it so well, those people will step in like Diane did for me and get you going in the right direction. And, and that, I think, is, is extraordinarily helpful when you're trying to reestablish yourself. I just want to mention briefly, for the physicians in particular, you know, if you don't have a license and you're sitting out there, uh, don't give up. I, we get physicians coming into us and screw this, I'll sell used cars. That was one of my great uh, potential career moves early on. Um, want any part of the medical profession, those HMOs are doing this and that and the other thing, and why, why am I in it at all anyway? And, you know, that's a semi-legitimate question, actually. Uh, <laughs> it ain't what I thought it was going to be, I'll tell you that. You know, and what I tell people who do that is keep your options open. And the other thing I tell people is that I don't see very many people in my short experience that no matter where they've been or how bad it was for them, cannot continue to practice medicine or nursing or dentistry if they're willing to do the work. Now, there is the sticking point. That may mean you don't practice for two years. You know, as long as you're out of Pennsylvania, stay out of Pennsylvania, bad place to be. Uh, it may mean that you go around doing other jobs. I had an orthopedist who had a lot of relapse problems, and he lost his license. And he was wealthy enough so that he didn't have to work, but he, he figured out that was not a good idea from a recovery point of view. So he took a job in the Minneapolis airport, wheeling disabled people around to their various gates. The guy was happy as a clam and high tide doing it. I mean, he came back raving about that job. He thought that was just marvelous, you know, and he continued to do what he needed to do uh, while he was preparing to get back. You know, at one point, that same individual said, I don't want to practice medicine anymore. And we looked at him and said, you got to keep your options open. You don't know what you're going to feel like two years after you come out of treatment when you're when you're four months sober. 
and the world is killing you. You must keep your options open. If you choose later not to practice, fine and dandy. But at least you chose it, and it wasn't thrust on you in some way or shape or form. I think that re-entry and getting back to where you are is eminently doable and frequently really a fascinating journey, with bad parts notwithstanding. Not all of my journey has been fascinating. Um, and I, I am reminded of what Al Tighe at Hazelden uh, said one day when I he was my aftercare counselor and I told him, gee, Al, things are starting to move along. And he looked at me and he said, you mean to tell me that if you go to meetings and do the work, you actually might get better? Isn't that a communist thought? You know? And that's what it is. It's that simple. And when new people come into my group, I say, I'm going to tell you the shortcut to recovery. Here it is. Do what you're told. You know? I don't like it any more than you do, but, you know, um, I, I sometimes, when I hear people say, don't drink, read the book, and go to meetings, I kind of cringe a little bit, because I'm not sure I think that's enough. I think I would probably say, don't drink, read the book, go to meetings, and do what you're told, dummy. You know, I think in order to stay in recovery, in order to reestablish yourself, you must be doing something. You can't necessarily be reading it, you can't be thinking about it, you can't be philosophizing it, you must be doing something. And if you're not, I don't think you're moving forward. That's really the only thing that I really wanted to say. I would be interested in hearing anybody's experiences or anybody who has questions or concerns or issues. The microphone is there. Please do not leave me hanging up here. You mean nobody wants to share anything? That's a problem with what I do for a living. I work with a lot of people who have relapsed, and nobody wants to see me in, in polite society anymore. You know, I mean, I'm Dick. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Dick. I will agree, 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 agree. What you said as you were talking. Um, yeah, I have to get close to that mic. As you were talking, I, I just continued to agree with everything you've said about recovery and the process of recovery. And I got to thinking right off the, the top of my head how it works. If you thoroughly follow our path, and that's the key for me, was when I made up my mind to do everything I was told to do, uh, I started getting better. And the, the principle of doing a little bit every day to stay healthy is extremely important to me. Uh, it's just really inspiring to know that this program can work if you work it. And that's the key just over and over for me, is just hang in there and do what I was told and I am amazed, and I know I'm not halfway through. Yeah, I think I agree with that. <laughs> Tammy, are you coming up? Or are you just walking? I have, I have a question for this group, and I don't know if it's exactly on the topic that was covered today, but... Um, <clears throat> oh, I'm just I'm an alcoholic and addict. Okay. And um, I would like to hear if this would be possible from somebody, some suggestions concerning a spouse, my spouse. Um, my spouse isn't interested in AA or Al-Anon or anything and kind of knows I need to do it to be get along, <clears throat> but I think he has some conflicts. I called him last night and he said, oh, it's something to the effect. I used an AA term and he said my brain was being washed and he, he, he gives out mixed signals about AA. And I'm told I can't persuade him to be interested in Alan. And I guess what my question is this. I try to work a good recovery program. I go to a lot of meetings. Um, I'm very active. 
and I'm asking myself if there's any chance um, that he's going to observe anything in my life that he would like to become interested in. When he, is there any chance to see recovery as an asset? And if so, is that likely to happen at any particular time? And if it doesn't, what kind of steps should I take? Does anybody have suggestions for me on living with this kind of ambivalence in my home? Thank you. I, you bring up a problem that is quite common in, in both directions, whether we're talking about uh, a female addicted individual and a male spouse or vice versa. I think one of the things we do at Hazelden, I think we all recognize that it is still more shame-based for a woman to be an addict in this country than it is for a man. And I think that women still have been trained to be nurturers, and, and so you have to, to deal with that so that they don't get into fixing things and that sort of thing. Uh, many of you may have heard this before. I just tumbled to it about two weeks ago. I happened to see it on the wall. It's a different version of the serenity prayer, and it goes like this. God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the person I can, and the wisdom to know it's me. I thought that was pretty good, actually. You know, I... What I generally tell spouses who are having trouble, I just had a, a nurse come back who was a year out of her program, and we were really concerned about her when she went back because we knew her husband was not only not interested, he was downright hostile. Uh, and she has managed to work her program even in the face of that. I think what frequently happens is, is you know, we get all kinds of interested in changing other people because we want them to do X, Y, and Z. You know, it's, it's kind of like going out and making a ninth step them in because you really want them to, to say, oh boy, I'm really glad, you know, you're a great guy now, you know. And some people don't even care. They don't even remember. And then you kind of get your ego bruised. Uh, I think you're going to have to continue to go on the one inalienable fact that the only person in the world you're ever going to change is yourself. Now, hopefully what will happen is your husband begins to see you improve or in some cases, see you not go for the bait as much, right, then, and only then, will he potentially change his attitude. There's no way I can give you a guarantee. What I tell new people to do is, the first thing I tell the men, I tell the men, never, 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 I repeat, never tell your wife to go to al Dumb move. Because you invariably wind up in an argument, especially if you're new in recovery. Right? But on the contrary, that doesn't mean you can't be real sloppy with all your AA literature and leave it around the house. You know, I spent some time trying to get my wife to Alana. Unfortunately, she went. <laughs> be very careful what you pray for. You know, and when she went, she wouldn't play my games anymore, and that was really a bruise. I, you know, I just couldn't, uh, you know. And, and, and then, uh, then she started saying things that really hurt, like, this is for your own good. You know, and totally detached. Uh, this is the only Al-Anon joke I will ever tell in public, alright, but it's a good one. How many Al-Anons does it take to change a light bulb? None. They all detach with love and watch it screw itself. You gotta take care of you and you gotta keep on taking care of you and you can certainly be open about what you're doing and that sort of thing. And if he's gonna change, he's gonna change and if he's not, he's not. And at some point you may start asking yourself questions about what, am I where I'm supposed to be? There's just no way that I know of that you can change another human being and God knows I have gotten bloody trying. You know, take care of yourself. We have a, we have a three-pronged uh, order of uh, preference in, at Hazelden, and this may be on the verge of heresy. I always tell patients, first and foremost, you are a human being. Second, you are an addict and an alcoholic. 
third, you are everything else. And I personally feel that if we lose sight of that, you know, we can get into real trouble. And the nice thing about being a human being is no CME credits are required to qualify. You get to be a human being because you're sitting in the space you're sitting in and for no other reason. So it is a difficult problem, though, and I, I certainly empathize with it. Pam? Well, part of this is in response to that. I think part of it's how, how far you are into recovery. And I think the other piece is as you get healthier, you wonder what your marriage has been based on. Um, and I think particularly, maybe this is a gen generalization, but particularly for women, um, as the organizers, caretakers, nurturers, da 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 when we stop doing some of that and taking care of ourselves, of course, people aren't going to be too happy. And if that's what your marriage has been based on, um, you know, the idea is not go, you know, divorce them instantly, but I mean, sometimes the more you change, the more antagonistic they'll become. But anyway. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that's about, uh, reentry and so forth, I, uh, also didn't feel the urine for my friend initially. Uh, and some of the monitoring seemed uh, overly burdensome at a time that I thought just waking up and staying sober was was more than I could handle. And I think that's something that our boards don't quite understand yet. At the time that we're the most vulnerable, we're asked to come up with the most strength, think the straightest. A lot of us are still in post-acute withdrawal, that kind of thing. Uh, that's just a side comment. But the idea of uh, 90 meetings in 90 days is also one of the the things that as a sponsor or whatever um, people feel is such a huge punishment and for myself and as and working with addicts you know the six month six month relapse is almost you know everybody kind of holds their breath as their sponsees go from five months to seven months or whatever and a lot of things happen around that six months and I think for a lot of us we really haven't we haven't unhooked from the old life, we haven't gotten our brain straight, and we haven't, even though we've gone to meetings, um, engaged and felt welcome and accepted because we're so shame-based in our new family of, of uh, recovering people. And so uh, when I punish some of my sponsees with 90 meetings in 90 days, it's not just, you know, you can't be using while you're in the meeting or I want to start admitting who you are. Um, it's it's a quicker way to connect with that family, and so I think your chance at that six months, whatever kind of relapse you have, emotional gambling, <laughs> um, acting out, using again, whatever it is, it, you're more connected to an accepting family um, since you've usually left most of your friends, and you may be living with a spouse or a family that has no clue as to what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So that other punishment sometimes <laughs> turns out to be a gift because you're you're welcomed into a family sooner. Yeah, I agree with you, Pam. And I, I, one of the most useless concepts to me personally is the concept of punishment. I don't believe in punishment anymore. Um, I just look at the world as there are things that are associated with consequences. If you go through a red light and get broadsided, it is probably not because somebody was sitting on the other side of that light just waiting to get you. It is a potential consequence of going through a red light. And, you know, one of the things I tell clients is don't ever go to the board of medical practice necessarily looking for support. That's not their job. 
you know, uh, their job is to protect the public and you need to accept that and it's not an unfair job. Uh, so you need to go someplace else for, for your support and, and, uh, understand that when the Board of Medical Practice says, we're not gonna let you do this and we're not gonna let you do that, that is a consequence of using mood altering chemicals. It is a part of my disease. And if I was doing something else, if I was an airline pilot, I wouldn't be flying for a while. You know, uh, now I do take exception to some of the people in this country who are not particularly tested, <laughs> mainly politicians, but, um, <laughs> You know, the fact of the matter is, is that people have the right to some sort of reasonable assurance that they're going to get some decent medical care, and none of us in this room would want somebody operating on us who was in the middle of a blackout. Nobody here would accept that. You know, so one of the consequences of using is that you might run afoul of the authorities and you might have to do some extra work of that. But it's not punishment, it's a consequence, that's all. You know, they really aren't out to get you. They really aren't. I mean, I know I thought that for a long time, you know. Um, the other thing is you want to stay away from my sponsor's favorite phrase, happiness is knowing who to blame. <laughs> if I can some find somebody to pin it on, boy, am I off the hook. You know, and I, I did that for a long, long time. You know, hey, it happened. I've got to deal with it. Let's move on. That's all we need to do. Hi, I'm Robin. I'm a grateful member of Alan and a compulsive overeater. Hi, Robin. Um, this is a little off the subject, but to address the first lady's question, I attend a lot of open AA meetings, probably more than I do Al-Anon, actually, and um, I see a lot of the alcoholics talking about stuff in their meeting about things that are really codependency issues, and I go up to them after the meeting, I say, you know, maybe you might want to try some Al-Anon meetings, and they always say, no, I'll get this in my AA recovery, and there are some differences. So, you know, they suggest the Al-Anoners go to AA meetings, and I've learned a tremendous amount. And, you know, I might want to put a little pitch in. Some of the AAs could probably qualify for Al-Anon. I probably, most alcoholics will qualify for Al-Anon, too. So you might want to give it a, a few meetings to try. Yeah, I got, I got tired after a while of listening to, for want of a better word, what I will call Al-Anon bashing. Um, and, uh, it, it really is, uh, an important issue, the issue that you bring up. I will give you a handy little tool for it, however. If you look at chemically dependent people, uh, from a psychological point of view, you will find that they have many of the traits that people who are so-called, I hate this phrase, but I don't have another one, codependent have. I mean, God, there are a lot of physicians in this room. Are we people pleasers or what? And the nurses even more. And are we perfectionistic? No, not here. You know, okay. Now, I think the other thing we pretty much know from the literature is that the single greatest risk factor for becoming addicted is to have another relative who's addicted. We know this disease have a, has a fairly heavily genetic influence. So what I like to tell wise guy AAs who are knocking down Alanons is this. An alcoholic is simply a codependent with a genetic defect. <laughs> that has a tendency to pull them up short just a little bit sometimes. You know, I think that stuff's unfair. I will admit to even having done it early on. I think it stinks. Uh, the other thing I don't like necessarily to see, and this is personal opinion, nothing more, is people start making uh, codependency a disease as if it were some horrible thing, you know. But most of the people who are, quote, codependent, unquote, that I've seen are doing nothing more than taking defense mechanisms that worked, worked when they were seven and bringing them into an adult life where they no longer work. And that's understandable. You know, if it worked before, yeah, you're probably going to try it again, and it may take a lot of you, a lot of experience, not to do it anymore. Uh, we don't have any trouble understanding that the alcoholics and addicts do that. 
You know, it is the dream of every alcoholic and addict to use and get it right. You know, so I don't think we should be particularly pejorative when somebody else has the same issue. You know, so, and you know, for the women in the room, I, I firmly believe this. Stand up for yourselves. Never accept anything second class from anybody at any time ever. It's simply not necessary. Any more than it's necessary for any person in this room in recovery to ever bow their head in front of another human being simply because you are in recovery and you are addicted. I got so sick and tired of doing that personally that one day I just decided to give it up and I'm extraordinarily glad that I did. It's a wonderful feeling. You don't have to accept what people necessarily get at you. I came back from work when I came out of treatment. Walked into the to the uh, floor, the uh, clinic. Everybody was standing there. Curiously enough, nobody was saying anything. A little odd, you know. And I uh, started to go get my charts, and still nobody was saying anything. And finally, I decided this is not working. So I turned around to the nursing staff and I said, "Okay, let's get this out of the way now." I just came back from Hazelden after 28 days. I appreciate those of you who sent me a card. I did not grow horns and a tail while I was up there, and I appreciate whatever support you have. Now let's go to work. And within a nanosecond, the normal conversation resumed. Now, I was just not willing to accept the role. You know, and it's difficult. It's not easy. You know, but when you can achieve it, it really is a very freeing phenomenon. You know, I don't care what it is or, or who you're dealing with. You don't have to accept the role. Hi, I'm Eric. I'm a cross-addicted alcoholic. Hi, Eric. Um, I was on the um, treatment center frequent flyer program, and in my travels, um, I noted that um, the issue of sexual compulsivity and addiction really was never addressed. However, most of the other people I ran into, including you know physicians, which you know I met hundreds of them at Talbot. Um, you know, they really, you know, for the large part, it really was never addressed, and the shame and the guilt over a lot of that behavior is what kept me relaxing a lot, and a lot of other people I know, um, you know, that's what kept bringing it back, and I was just wondering, you know, in the big book, it says, you know, we really don't talk about or address this issue, just be honest in your affairs and stuff, and it seems like now we're quite a few years later, and I don't, I just, it seems like it's still not being addressed enough, and I was just wondering if you'd comment on that. It is an issue that's not necessarily being addressed. I know we address it, address it at Hazelden. I don't see much of it because I have no particular expertise in that field. Some of what you see, particularly among the men in the early days of recovery, is you see one of two kinds of things. You either see somebody who's virtually impotent or you see somebody who decided sex is a contact sport. You know, and uh, you just you, you see the two extremes. And most of those people begin to level out at some point. But you're going to have people who have distinct sexual compulsivity disorders um, and that has to be dealt with because the shame from that is even worse than the shame from addiction. I had a patient in my practice who has not done well, who was diagnosed while he was down at Talbot as being a pedophile. He had never acted that out in his entire life. He just had, he fit the DSM-4 criteria because he had the appropriate fantasies. In all the years that he was on the planet, he never once acted it out. And he went down uh, to the place in Texas that does a lot of work on, on that. And he came back, but it was a stumbling block for the next two years in his, in his relationship. He could not forgive himself for those thoughts, you know, even though he had never acted it. And, of course, when you start putting diagnoses down like pedophilia, boy, have you got an emotional time bomb. I mean, you know, I, I, I could tolerate going to the board of medical practice with my addiction. I'm not sure I could really get there with, with somebody telling me that I had an abnormal interest in, in children. That would really be, you know, 
pretty difficult. So, so yeah, the, those issues have to be addressed. Eating disorders in women, gambling, everything has to be addressed. It's not just the one thing. You know, I, I sometimes I like to introduce myself and say, my name is Bob, I'm tri-addicted. Everything I try, I get addicted to. You know, and it, it's true. There's one story apropos of shame, and I'm going to give it to you, and some of you may think I'm a little crazy, but I, I think it's a cute story, and it is it is uh, reported to have happened in an AA meeting in Los Angeles, and of course we all know that AA meetings in Los Angeles are a little different than they are everywhere else in the country, but um, and it's what I refer to in my groups as the chicken story. All of us have to deal with shame. Well, this story goes, and my first sponsor swears it's true, that somebody entered AA in L.A., and spent their first year in L.A., in A.A., sitting in the back of the room, never talking to anybody, never taking a step, never saying a word, running out of the meeting as soon as it was over. And when he got to a year sober, they literally forced him up to the podium to take his one-year medallion. And he got up to the podium, and sweat broke out on his face, and his arms and legs were shaken, and he said something to the effect of, I, I, I have a terrible confession to make. I am sober but there's something I was doing when I was drinking that I just have to get off my chest. When I was drinking, I had illicit relationships with chickens. Dead silence. Ten seconds later, a voice in the last row sang out, Well, yours alive or dead? Okay. So sometimes I tell my patients, this is a chicken story issue. Uh, this is a shame issue. That's one of the freeing parts of of, uh, of being in recovery is, you know, no matter what you've done, there's another story there someplace. And it is just as grandiose to think you are the worst person on the face of this planet as it is to think you are the best and frequently more destructive. So we and, and I like to use in my work, I like to use things like that that are a little offbeat and silly because one of the good things about them is you remember them. You know, they're weird enough so that you remember them. We have another we have another uh, thing that we use for dealing with shame that's that's kind of a cute little thing and then I will shut up and get out of your way. Uh, we talk about when you're really feeling bad about yourself and you think you're the worst thing in the world, you got to take the Jerusalem test. Now, how do you do that? What you do is you ask yourself the following question: Where was I in the year 33 A.D.? If the answer you come up with is not Jerusalem, I submit to you that you did not kill Christ, and I suggest you act accordingly. Right. Now, it sounds dumb, but it works. It works. And it's a big issue for a lot of people in recovery and a lot of people in Al-Anon and, and anybody who's near this. Uh, you're not the worst person in the world, no matter where you've come from. Yeah. Before I close with the uh, Lord's Prayer, I just want to, number one, thank the people from IDAA for getting me up here. Uh, I want to thank all of you for listening. And I want to leave you the same way I leave my groups. Uh, and my counselor before me left his groups. Be kind to yourself, everybody. You deserve it. Let's do the Our Father. Our Father, art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs>